Hi, everyone, and welcome to Paradox Untold Stories from Athletic Directors. I am Dr. Danielle Lapointe, and my co-host is Dr. Dustin Smith. And we are here today with Gary Stevens. Hey, Gary, how are you today? Good morning. How is it going, folks? We are so excited to have you on here. Um, I'd like to start off by thanking our sponsor, Ticket Spicket, who makes this episode and every episode possible. Um, we're going to let Dustin inter- introduce Gary today, just in case Dustin decides to bail on us early again. Um, we we want to make sure he, he gets the talk in the beginning this time, right, Dustin? Yeah, I'm, I've, I'm warning you, Gary, there's no telling what may happen with <laughs> the interweb and the stuff that happens in Arkansas. Uh, but man, I'm excited to have Gary Stevens on with us today. And Gary has become a great friend of mine. And I, I first got to meet Gary through uh, actually a presentation that we both did. He just sent me an email said, hey, I'd like to do a presentation with you. He sat in on a presentation that we were doing in Arkansas. Um, and so he and I hit it off. It was during COVID. And we were talking about just kind of how to return to play. And we were working on a, a project together. <clears throat> and so I've gotten to know Gary the last two years and just his work through COVID, but also his work through the NIAAA. And so when I tell you there are educated men in this world, Gary is probably at the top of that list. I I think I went to the Harvard of Arkansas, which was the University of Arkansas. <laughs> Gary actually went to Harvard. So he is intellectually superior than uh, both Danielle and myself. So we'll have a conversation. Whoa, whoa, whoa. About... Speak for yourself there, Dustin. Whoa. I know you both <laughs> well enough to know he is intellectually <laughs> superior to both of us. But Gary Stevens has um, been involved with the publications committee. He writes articles for the <clears throat> for our, our magazine that comes out quarterly. Um, Gary's a, a national faculty member. He teaches. He presents. He He's a jack of all trades, and some people would say a jack of all trades and master of none, but Gary is a jack of all trades and master of all. Uh, anything that he does, uh, Gary is in Saco, Maine, and we're going to talk about that geographically here in a minute. But man, Gary, I'm excited that you're here, and what I like to start with when I ask or I introduce our people is... Tell us a little bit about Gary that the resume is not going to tell us. We can look at accolades. We can talk about NIAAA involvement. But what makes Gary Stevens Gary Stevens aside from being an athletic director? Thank you, first of all, uh, Danielle and Dustin, for this uh, opportunity to be on the Paradox uh, podcast. And thank you for providing this opportunity for our members of uh, our National Athletic Directors Association to get to know each other a little bit better. Um, I, I came to athletics administration really through sort of a non-traditional route, I would say. Uh, and it was never an intended route as, as well. Um, I am the son of an educator. I'm actually the brother of an educator, and I'm the nephew of two educators. So we've always had education, uh, at least in the last couple of generations, in our family. And I guess I probably should have gotten hints that I was going to be in, in where this place I am back in probably 1966 when I was five years old. And my father was a junior high school. And you notice I did say junior high school, not middle school, because I'm of the era we went to junior high schools, okay? So I'm a, I'm a 20th century man, I tell people very clearly. <laughs> but but uh, my dad was the uh, principal at a junior high school, and he taught mathematics all day, and he coached. Um, 
softball and basketball and he directed the plays and he ran the spelling bees and he drove the bus occasionally and he did all those types of things uh to uh, and, and sort of became my role model i guess and again we as athletic directors as you mentioned justin we have to be the jack of many trades uh, and my father was truly more of a master at anything he did than I did. I am still trying to live up to his standard in my mind. Uh, he is certainly my, my hero, my role model. And what was happening when I was five, six, seven years old was I used to travel with him a lot and go to his school a lot uh, during the school year. Um, I, I guess my, my, my mother was probably just trying to get me out of the house for a little bit. Uh, or maybe to give my younger sister, who was like one or two at the time, a break. But I used to go a lot with my dad. During the summertime, I would spend time in his office. He would give me projects. I remember being 12 years old and actually uh, typing out uh, his, his handbook for his staff. Uh, and it had to be perfect. Uh, and we used those old Mimeo ditto things. So you could correct things with a razor blade, but he expected perfection. So... I did a lot of that for him, uh, which again gave me the, the the idea of you know you you try to do your best and you and the goal is to try to uh, uh, try to strive to be perfect. You can't always be perfect, but the idea of, of of trying to strive for that is important. But also when he was coaching, he had me uh, sit on the sideline with him. So I literally was five years old sitting on a bench while he's coaching girls basketball, and when I was five, he taught me how to keep the scorebook. So I'm this little guy keeping the book. And actually, he would ask me at age five, six, and seven for the stats during the game because he trusted me more than his regular bookkeeper, actually. But uh, so I did a lot of, <laughs> of that with him. And um, when I got into school, you know, high, junior high school and high school myself, I always wanted to, to participate in athletics. Uh, but I was never very athletically uh, oriented physically. I was athletically oriented mentally. I had, I guess, an athletics IQ, but I didn't have the, 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 the talent to, to be able to make a team. So I started out as the, the team manager and uh, for a few sports. And even when I get into high school, the uh, football coach had me do the statistics. So I actually earned, I think during my time in high school, seven varsity letters, but it was all in those support roles. And again, little did I realize that those experiences were preparing me for a lot of things in terms of my role as an athletic director. I was learning organizational skills. I was learning management skills. I was learning communication skills. Um, and um, I also had some empathy for the last kid on the bench because I wanted to be him. I, I wasn't talented enough to make the team to be the last guy on the bench. I would have loved to have been him, but I never forgot what it was like to be the last guy on the bench. I did have one coach. Um, a guy named Mike Salvato when I was in eighth grade uh, put me on the, uh, uh, on, the, on the junior high school baseball team. And I was the last guy. I played one inning at first base as a backup, but we won a championship. And I was very excited to be part of it and sign the ball. And I'm so appreciative of him giving me the opportunity to be the last guy on the bench. And, and so, I, again, I got, I've been there and I understand what it's all about. And I did it with, with pride. In fact, during COVID, one of the things I was thinking about was, how impactful he was to me and the opportunity provide me and how he's helped me do my job that I wrote him an eight page letter, uh, just letting him know what it, that, that moment meant to me. And I heard back from him, which was nice as well. And he shared some stories about me that I'd forgotten 
uh, doing <laughs> stupid things I did when I was in, in junior high school. But um, so that sort of was my my journey. And um, I was always very focused on my academics. And uh, again, son of an educator. And my father never applied any pressure on me, but it was it was there in that Again, he was about trying to strive to do your best and he expected his son and daughter to do that. So my sister was probably more naturally gifted academically than I am. I had to work harder at it to get sort of the same thing. But, you know, um, had a chance to have a great high school career academically. Um, I, um, my, I, was a, I was an altar boy in the Episcopal Church in my, in my town. And um, our priest... Uh, who had been an alumnus of the Harvard class in 1971 said to me during my junior year, Hey, you ought to consider applying to Harvard. And I'm like, boy, that's a real stretch. I, you know, I I don't know if I could ever get in. They basically, they accept about 1700 people out of 13,000 applicants. Why are they going to go to pick somebody from Lincoln, Maine, which is, I grew up about probably 60 miles from the Canadian border. So why are they going going to pick me public high school kid? Not a lot of confidence in many ways, but uh, I applied. It was a $20, in those days, that was a lot, $20 to apply, wrote my essay, did my interview with an alumnus. And during our April break, um, I remember the Tuesday, the letter in the mail coming, big, thick letter from from Harvard. And I'm like, this has to be good because it's thick. They're not going to like say, <laughs> you're awful and, and print it out on yeah, they're not going to do that. Sorry. No, or, or, ha, ha, ha. They're, they're not going to insult me multiple ways. Yeah, my sister was with me, and I remember opening the envelope. And think, first thing I pulled out was uh, a, a, a notice on how much I could save if I, if I rented bed linens from them. Because what they do at Harvard, they find a way to get your money. They have, like, oversized beds that your regular linens won't fit. So they had specialized bed linens. And that was how I knew I got in. But I was reading that, you know, they were offering me a deal on bed linens. And I remember being very excited, calling my parents. My parents were both working. My dad was in school. My mother was a manager of a bakery within within the supermarket. And and we were off and going. And and, uh, my goal was to be uh, a doctor. That was why, not a doctor like you folks. We we could have had three of docs, I guess. But I would be, you know, my goal (laughs) would be doing doing uh whether it be a surgery or a general practitioner and um and I, I went through my first year which is a real challenge that i mean you're, you're dealing with some high flyers academically uh, i had three professors that were pulitzer prize winners i mean it's like it is it is very very challenging and uh it's funny some of my my classmates i now in fact i saw one on tv last night uh with the uh with the January 6th hearings, Jamie Raskin, who was actually the, um, Jamie is a classmate of mine, and he was the uh, lead manager in the second impeachment uh, uh, hearing uh, back a number of months ago. But Jamie and I went to school together, and he was in my class. And David Vetter, who uh, uh, was a U.S. senator from uh, Louisiana, was in my class. So we had some high flyers that you're trying to compete with, uh, and and it's, it's, it's tough. And and I, I realized after a year that I was not going to be uh, involved with uh, medicine at all. It just it, it, the science track was really not me. I was more of a social scientist uh, and English guy. And I remember telling my dad, I think I'd like to look at journalism. And he he wasn't really uh, hepped on that, really. Uh, 
he thought that was not a good move. But ironically, uh, and my father's passed away, he's been passed away 32 years now. Ironically, as Dustin mentions, I, I do a lot of writing. And, uh, and so I did become a journalist as a hobby, not as a profession, but sort of as a side, side thing. But by junior year, my college roommate who'd gone to Milton Academy in Massachusetts and uh, went to prep school in England, what have you, he was telling me about the private school life. And I'm like, that sounds like something I'd like to do. So ironically, I came full circle and went back to where my parents had, or my father had been sort of showing me the way all along is career and education. And uh, I've been in four schools. Uh, my first school and this, you, you won't find, you'll find this, the name on the resume, but you won't find the details. Um, my first school was a K to eight school with 59 students total. Okay. And I was, uh, essentially I taught grades seven and eight, all subjects, uh, in, including phys ed and, uh, well, music, I traded off. I traded that off with a, <laughs> a third grade teacher and I took her kids for phys ed, but, uh, so, but I, I was a K to eight, uh, a teacher in K to school, and at age twenty-two, I was the principal, and the only male wow. at eleven. All right, I'm a kid running a school, and no clue what I was doing. So I had to learn leadership on the fly. And I, it, this school was eighteen air miles from Canada, up in the middle of the woods, low aspirations. Um, most of the kids, uh, you know, their families didn't really value education that much. But it was a great experience for me in leadership. And uh, I was there for four years, went back to my alma mater to teach and coach for three. And then I, I moved to Southern Maine in 1990. And I've been down here for 32, the first 17 at a school called Bon Eagle High School in Standish, which is about 20 miles west of Portland, Maine, uh, public school. Um, and I eventually became the AD there after about six years. And I've been here at Thornton. Uh, for the last 15. Um, I'm actually technically retiring June 30. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm retiring and actually getting rehired. We have an, uh, in Maine, we have a, a system where you can actually, uh, retirees can get rehired again at their old position. So I'll be starting to get my pension July 31st, my first check, but I'm coming back next year for at least one more year uh, here at Thornton where I've been since 2007. So that gets you from uh, being a little guy, keeping a scorebook to where I am today. And uh, hopefully that gives you a, a sense of, of who I am and be happy to share anything in between the lines that you want to talk more about. Well, I want to ask about, I, I, I always ask this question about those who are geographically challenged. We haven't been to Maine in the podcast. And so can you put it on a map where Saco, Maine is, where Thornton Academy is, relatively speaking, in the, in the state of Maine, so people will have an idea of where you're located. Certainly. And uh, Maine is actually, of the six New England states, Maine is as large as the other five combined. And in fact, the geographical center of New England is uh, about uh, five miles from my house. Uh, so if you wanted to go from Greenwich, Connecticut, which is right near Westchester County, New York, to, to where I live. It's the same as Burlington, Vermont or Madawaska, Maine, which is the tip of our state. But uh, more specifically, uh, I work in Saco, Maine. And it is, you got the Saco right. A lot of people call it Saco, Saco. It is Saco, uh, S-A-C-O. Uh, we are 36 miles north of the New Hampshire line. The Piscataqua River separates Maine and New Hampshire on the Southern end. 
Uh, we're about uh, an hour and a half or so from Boston, uh, directly north on Interstate 95. Uh, we, it's interesting, we, had a, uh, we hosted a team from Everett, Massachusetts in a football exhibition a few years ago. And uh, uh, I don't think it's that far to Boston. I go, down, I go to Boston quite frequently for, uh, uh, you know, to go to professional sporting events or go back to the campus, uh, what have you. But uh, um, we, we're hosting this, this team from Everett, Mass. And Everett is a, is a suburb of Boston. It's the next town north uh, on essentially uh, Route 1. And uh, these coaches get off the bus, and they'd never been to Saco, Maine before. And they're asking me, if we were, we were almost into Canada and, and they had only gone probably 95 miles. And I'm like, no, you have about another 290 miles north to get to Canada from here. So we're, we're uh, really in some ways we're a suburb of Boston. Uh, there are people who work in the city that live in our area and, and just commute every day. No. And I, um, I want to go back a little bit and I want to touch upon what you said about being the last kid on the bench. And yes. I think that's a really cool perspective. Um, you know, sometimes you hear, we get, you know, complaints from parents or kids are upset because they're the last kid on the bench. But the way you framed that was like so beautiful because you were grateful to be on that bench. And what a unique perspective that, um, I don't know how much I've, I've, I've thought about, and I just really like that you brought that to light. I just want to say I, that. I thought that was awesome. Thank, thank you, Daniel. And, you know, I, one of the things, I've, I've always seen myself as an underdog, okay? And people, people think that somebody who's had the fortune that I've had to, to be, have an Ivy education, they think, okay, you must be elitist. Uh, you, you know, you're, a, you're pampered, you're rich, uh, you went to prep school, you've had everything handed to you. I mean, I didn't own a car until I got that job at that K-8 school. I never had a car. I had to borrow my parents. Uh, I, and we just, we, we, and I worked at a paper mill three summers um, doing, you know, whatever labor um, and to, to make money. And, and my parents had, for my four years at Harvard, I think they put out 2000 bucks. The rest was all scholarships or I earned. And so I've always like, I've always, I've always felt connected with that underdog person, that person who's striving to move forward. And, uh, and I've always appreciated what I've had. I've, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm goal driven. Uh, I always want, and we all want more. I think I'll want, I'll want to improve all want to achieve things, but I do appreciate what I have. And I've tried to, and I, I, I respect those, those kids on that, that backside of the bench, just to give you a quick story. We had a young man a few years ago in cross country uh, who was our slowest runner. He was last in every meet. And uh, I, I never knew how much, you know, the coach was speaking with him. But I always made a point, you know, when we had those home cross country meets to be there at the finish line. And, you know, I had a sense of what his times were. And I remember one time he'd made a five second improvement or whatever. And I said to him, you know, hey, that was a great job. You're getting better. It's a little faster, working harder. And, uh, uh, just keep 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 at it. Uh, that's fantastic. And uh, a few weeks later, we had another home meet, and he made another improvement, uh, probably ten seconds. And I again, I was there at the finish line, and said, "Hey, you you doubled your your improvement this time. You, got, you you know you cut it by ten more seconds. That's that's phenomenal." And he cut me off and gave me the greatest lesson in perspective I've ever heard. He goes, he goes, Mr. Stevens. He says, 
I know I'm not the fastest guy on the team, but you know, the way I figured out, I get more playing time than anybody else. And I'm like, what a wonderful <laughs> way to look at it. And when you think about it, in most sports, in most sports, the better you are, the more playing time you get uh, in sports like cross country track and field swimming, any place there's the clock, mm -hmm. uh, the, the less skilled you are, the more playing time you get. So he just enjoyed the run. And isn't that, that's really what, that's really what we want for every kid just mm -hmm. to enjoy the run and appreciate what you have out there when you're out there and just do the best you can. So I learned an important lesson from that, that conversation. I thought it was funny. I tried not to laugh. Uh, but I'm like, he does it. That is brilliant. Uh, absolutely. It really is. Brilliant. I've never even thought of it that yeah. way before. Love well, it. I think about, I was talking to Steve Throne last night via text and we were talking about running 5Ks. And uh, I said, when I run a 5K, I try to enter the 55 and older women's category because I feel confident I can compete with that level. Um, but this kid may have had it figured out. Hey, I get to run as long as I want to, and they're not running me off the course. They're not booing me. They're, I get to do, and as you said, enjoy the run. And I think that's what he did. And sometimes I think we lose perspective of that, being able to just go enjoy the run. And that's what that young man was doing. Yeah, because when you think about for, even our championship teams, when they get together for the the reunions or what have you, yeah, they talk about the trophy, but a lot of times the stories they share are the run. They share, uh, you know, the, the the bus rides and the, the team pasta dinners and uh, the banter in the locker room and those types of things. That's Those are the memories. And, you know, going back to my managerial thing, I think that I was very fortunate that I had a lot of really good friends who were on the basketball team. And when I, my senior year uh, at the, at the awards banquet, they gave me a net that had been up on the basket. I don't think they ever changed it. It had been up there four years. So my whole career, that net had been there. And the team awarded me with a net. It was one of the nicest things you could have happen. So, you know, I think it just shows you if you work hard and you're a good teammate and you play your role, uh, the recognition doesn't have to be a trophy or a championship plaque or all-state. A net will do, and it and it's 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 worth its weight in gold. What what a powerful example mm -hmm. of what perspective is, uh, and sometimes we lose sight of right. perspective. And <clears throat> the this this generation we're in with entitlement, with um, travel ball, and hey, I play, I start on my travel ball team, and I should be starting on my varsity team, which may not relate. You may only have eight players on your varsity or your travel basketball team. So they need you to play when you get in the varsity level, it may be 15 on the team and you may not get that opportunity, but what a powerful um, example of perspective from your teammates, um, from, from that young man who ran cross country, I mean, just powerful lessons on display. And I think, I think that's great for young athletic directors or any athletic directors to hear is just that perspective. And sometimes we need to not just chase the gold ball, but chase the experience for kids. Yeah, and I, I think the, the other thing it teaches us too, Dustin and Danielle, is uh, as we hear more and more about uh, leadership in this century, one of the qualities is, is, is often mentioned as a leader is humility. And you know, there's a time when maybe my generation of the 20th century the leader always had to be right. It was about winning. It was about 
having your way. Uh, I, I've learned that leadership is not about being right. It's about getting things right. And sometimes you have to use that, that perspective of humility. And you don't have to know it all, but find people who can, can instruct you, help you, give you their perspective. And, uh, and that's one thing I think that that, that last guy on the bench and that, and again, it's sort of like my, my life story and what I've tried to do to go from where I started to where I am now, where I'm, I mean, I, I've been just given so many gifts and, and wonderful leadership roles was I never forgot where I came from. Uh, I never thought I was more than I was. Uh, I tried to keep people respectfully. Uh, I try to be, uh, use self-deprecating humor whenever possible. Um, so people realize I, I can laugh at myself. And I just think that idea of humility just grounds you and it just allows you to accomplish so much more. I really, I really feel that way. So <clears throat> we had, uh, we had a guest on here a, a few episodes ago that talked about, um, and, and I'm assuming in Taco Maine, you might have some frozen temperatures sometimes. Yes. Have you ever had frozen ink at a <laughs> swimming meet? <laughs> Well, our pool tends to be 88 degrees or so, so I've never seen frozen ink at at a at a <laughs> swim meet. But uh, we did this last winter. We have a retention pond uh, that is uh, located right in the middle of our campus. Uh, we have about an 88 acre campus, and all the the rainwater or snow melt or whatever drains into this retention pond. Uh, and and all of our campus has a slight slope, so that works that way, and then it gets pumped into the Saco River, which we're, we're about three miles from the Atlantic Ocean, so that's where our rainwater goes pretty quickly. But the, it'll build up in that pond, and I've seen that ice up to the point where people are out there skating and playing hockey. Uh, so I've seen people do create makeshift rinks, but I've never <laughs> seen uh, uh, ink ice over. Well, that's, it was probably because your pools are, are your pools that you use indoor. They are indeed indoors, but you know, it's funny. There are a lot of outdoor facilities. This is a, a true story. Um, and I, I tell this one, um, I've been married. Uh, I'll be, my wife and I will have our 25th wedding anniversary, July 26th. So that's coming up uh, next month. And um, I became athletic director at Bon Eagle, my previous school, which actually my wife had attended uh, uh, back in the day, back in 1996. And we had been dating for a couple of years and I'd been AD for like two months and I proposed marriage uh, to her and she accepted. And uh, we, were, we were all set to be married the following summer. And uh, back then she used to like be willing to follow me around, do my stuff a lot more than probably today. She's learned, <laughs> learned the lessons, but uh, in those days, maybe she had nothing better to do. And, uh, and maybe I, I would do in a crisis, who knows, but I was, uh, she would go around with me a lot to athletic events. So, we had this one hockey game that was uh, I, I need to get home ice for, and our home rink had no more ice slots. So I called every rink in Southern Maine. You have like two hours. I, I'm trying to find a place to schedule this game, and nobody had any ice. It was all tied up. So I called the school that we're supposed to play, a fellow by the name of Ted Welch, and, uh, and we're playing. It's York High School is the school, and York is located – seven miles north of, of the New Hampshire line, but again, about 2930 south of where I'm sitting. And he goes, well, you know, Gary, I may be able to help you find a place since your home game. You have to pay the, I said, I'm good if you can find a spot. So he says, hey, I found a spot in Durham, New Hampshire, which is where University of New Hampshire is. And it's located uh, just east of where Ted is. 
and it would take probably about an hour and 15 minutes from my school to get there. So he booked it for me. We're the home team, hour and 15 minutes away. So I had uh, said to my fiance, who did eventually marry me after this, this episode, I'm like, uh, hey, how would you like to go to a home hockey game in Durham, New Hampshire with me? Sure, I'll go. I said, and I bribed her. I, we, I said, we can go out to a place called Newick's uh, Lobster House, which is one of our favorite seafood places. It's in Dover, New Hampshire, next town over from Durham. So I'm like, no, a little bribe. I'll take you out to dinner, and then we'll go do the hockey. <laughs> so we, uh, we leave Standish, Maine, where, uh, where we both live now. And uh, uh, we took off for the, ho- for, for the dinner and the hockey game. And I hadn't done a lot of scouting on this rink. And it so happened that particular night, it was about two degrees Fahrenheit with an incredible wind chill that probably took about 10 degrees off. So it was cold. We get to the rink and I see the rink. It's all, you can see it all lit up. But the thing was, the rink had a roof and was open on the sides. So oh, it was no. an outdoor facility. Oh, no. And I can still see my wife, uh, then fiance. And again, this could have been this could have been it. Uh, <laughs> I can see her at the end of the first period, like pivoting around or two feet or close to get pivoting around, uh, almost like a, a wind up toy that, that, you know, sort of uh, rotates and looking at the bus. And I said to her, I said, are you uh, planning to get on that bus between periods? And um, she let me know in no uncertain terms that, yes, she was getting on that bus. And it may be longer than than between periods. So uh, there are we I we've had a, we've had an event here that essentially on a two degree night in New England was de facto outdoors. And man, I it was a quiet ride home. Uh, but uh, in the last time she went to uh, a hockey game with me for many many years. <laughs> you know, you think about even that environment, and with, when. When the kids showed up and they saw that was where they were playing, what was their reaction? From the coaches. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think some of them had played there before. Hockey, hockey uh, folks are a very unique community, and that they are used to uh, going very early in the morning. I apologize for uh, the announcements. We are actually uh, dismissing for the exam. Uh, we've had exams today, so we're dismissing for the day. So, apologize for those announcements, but. Uh, Hockey people are very resilient, and they're used to practicing early in the morning, uh, late at night, uh, all sorts of different type of facilities, uh, and they do that way from time they can lace up skates for the first time until whenever their career ends. And so they they know they don't complain at all. They they didn't they didn't say a word. They were appreciative to have a game, and I didn't have to worry about that at all. It was just uh, Ida, my fiance now wife. That there was no one who raised any type of uh, concern. I mean, you want ice to be cold, obviously. It's got to be uh, for that oh, yeah. to happen. But you don't want ice between you and your fiance. That is definitely right. And I tell you, it, that, that, I think the inside of the car did ice over. But we now laugh at that. <laughs> it, was a, it was a great memory. And again, I, we were engaged. So uh, this is what you got to deal with. <laughs> You said yes. <laughs> this whole package. Did Did you win the hockey game? Oh, we got killed. It was seven nothing. Oh. We, our, our, that team uh, that year, I think, was one sixteen and one. They had one win and one tie. They were not good. 
That makes the cold feel yeah, just a little go, colder. <laughs> yeah, they were they were not very very good. It's interesting now. I'm at I'm at a school mat now. Our hockey program was in the large school state championship game this year. So we've uh, it's I've come a long way in many ways from that that first experience. It, it makes a it makes an even colder ride home even colder. Mm-hmm. When you when the team doesn't win and you you battled that to go through those elements and then the fiance and now wife. I mean, kudos to you for being able to keep her around through all that mess. Exactly. Kudos to her for yeah. for sticking with you with her and all that. No, she's actually been pretty good. We she um she doesn't travel with me to games as much as she used to, but uh, she's been a good sport and has has spent her her nights in gyms and at fields and and what have you as as well so uh but she's also she's a very independent person so she she does her thing professionally i do mine and and then we ha- we we make it happen together so you know it, what's fascinating these two stories that you've told us to this point you you got perspective from the cross-country kid um and it goes back to your perspective of i mean i was just honored to be able to be on that bench i was able to play one inning at first base, and that was a that was an incredible honor to me as a person. And you see what happened with the kid who his perspective just uh, really resonates with me. And now the perspective of what we have to have in our lives is some balance. And the right. balance for you was uh, maybe tilted one way greater than the other, but you were able to make that work just simply because of the the situation that you were in. And and how fitting for an athletic administrator to be able to overcome that situation and say, Hey, no matter the elements, we're making this happen. Without question. And we do that. I mean, we, we, we're faced with, uh, how do we make this work? And we do it and, uh, not to everybody's satisfaction always, but, uh, we try to find a way that's in the best interest of the students involved. And I include the, the, uh, the visiting students as well. Uh, we're in this time year now where we're in playoffs for various activities and trying to figure out start times for games. And I try not to forget that our opponents, have senior events and awards nights and that type of thing. And I, I think we need to keep that big picture. I, 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 when I do training with athletic directors, one of the things I remind them is that when we were coaches, we were always looking to get the upper hand, you know, get all the knowledge and, and, and get as much as we can. So we have an advantage of some sort when we're competing. And I was sort of that way in the classroom, frankly, for a long while as well. And, uh, Back in 1991, I was with a gentleman by the name of Dale Sinclair. Dale hired me to teach history at Bonnie Eagle High School and later a coach. Dale was also a big sports fan and, and, and just a wonderful mentor to me who was very wise. And he invited me to a social studies conference in, uh, in Brunswick, Maine, up near Bowdoin College. And, um, and I'm, I'm there and I'm taking notes. And I, I, just, I still very much a, vor- a voracious note taker. And I just, it, I'm a visual learner for one thing. And my wife will tell you, you can't tell me anything. So I have to be visual, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I'm very visual, always writing things down. And he's watching me at this conference and he's like, uh, we're, we're riding home in his truck. And he goes, you know what, Gary? He goes, you're a sponge. And I like sort of puff my chest out. I'm like, that's, I like hearing that, you know, he, he knows I'm a lifelong learner. And he said something to me that really was important. He goes, don't forget, a sponge only works well if you wring it out every once in a while. So he wasn't complimenting me. He was saying, you know, knowledge needs to be shared with others. 
And then when I do trainings with athletic directors, whether it be workshop or LTC or whatever I'm doing, I always remind them, you know, when we were coaching, we wanted to hoard that knowledge. Now we need to share. We need to be willing to, if we have a practice that works for us to share it with others, because our schools may be competing against each other. And I'm, I'm, I want you to be the best equipped leader you can be to manage a variety of situations if my kids are under your care, as you would for me. So I think that's it's, it's important to, to, again, keep in mind that it's about constantly learning and sharing and uh, wringing out that sponge every once in a while. And Dale gave me a pretty powerful lesson with that comment, which I thought was a compliment, but it was uh, a reminder that I haven't forgotten some 30 years later. Yeah, we, we call those backhanded compliments here. Uh, that really, you, you think you're, you think you're getting a real a real compliment, but it's really um, a lesson to be taught to you that that you're you're wise, obviously, to pick up on the lesson if you can. Sometimes I'm one of those who likes to, I need to be wrung out a few times before I actually catch the message. Right, right, and it also I think goes to you know. Um, and one of the things I've learned in my career is, you know, anything we can do to, you know, Rich Barton, he was the president of the NIAAA, they talked about lift and assist and the idea of lifting others and helping others. And that's one of the joys of the profession, too, is uh, being able to help promote your colleagues and, and, and help them grow. And it just makes all of us better when that happens. So I, I'm, I'm very much into sharing. It's not all about, uh, you know, I used to be concerned about getting the grade. And now I'm 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 more interested in, in sharing the credit with others. But we talked a few times during this COVID process, and we talked about things that we were doing in Arkansas that was different than what you were doing, and we were actually able to return to play, and you know even the bus rides and some of those things that we did, and we talked about how we could, if our windows were down, then circulation was happening, and kids could ride in the bus, and we'd be okay. But you told the story of because of temperature coming back from games, they couldn't put the windows down and the kid had mm -hmm. lowered the window down just a little bit just to try to get some air, but it, the temperature outside prevented you from really being able to leave that. So you think about just perspective of parts of the country and how we had to deal with those things. Do you remember that story of that kid who couldn't, who tried to put the window down and got in trouble for doing that? Yes, exactly. No, that, that, I remember talking to you about that. You reminded me of that, that uh, we, uh, um, in the fall of that particular year, we were basically all the, we we're at half capacity, one student per seat. We never got quite into the checkerboard, which some people talked about, uh, but you know, we had one person per seat and then in the fall, the, the window's down, but uh, uh, we get into the winter time to basketball games or hockey when we were able to travel. Um, there were, there were kids that would try to, uh, because it was cold, the windows would be down a crack just to get some air circling and they try to put it up because they're cold. And, they got admonished by the bus driver. No, we can't do that. The company yeah. said, no, we have to keep the windows down for circulation. Meanwhile, the poor kid is now moving towards the center aisle as far as he can without falling off so he can have some degree of warmth. But um, we, yeah, that, we had some challenges. That was really that one winter of uh, 2021. We didn't really get started that particular winter until after the New Year's. But from January to March of 2021, that was the challenging time. Uh, for us here it, in Maine. And it, 
in, in you know, to talk about what Dustin is saying is the exact opposite than was true down here, where we're not putting windows down because in Florida, this is too hot. Right. I would never send my athletes on a bus that didn't have AC. Like, you, you can't. Like, it's just so hot, especially in August when, you know, football season starts and, and all the fall sports are starting. So um, it's it's where we are located geographically does definitely play a huge um, part in what, what those decisions we were making. Well, I think it's perspective, too. We talked about it earlier. They played an open rink or open air rink for hockey. They they're tougher up in Maine than what we are. They could put the windows down and have an open air bus ride home, obviously, with temperatures that may be approaching zero or ten or whatever the, the temperature was outside. They're used to that. Now basketball players aren't used to playing in that kind of environment. So they may have been a little more um aware of the conditions than maybe a hockey player would because a hockey player may thrive in that area, but a basketball mm-hmm. player likes the temperature and the climate controlled area. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so for sure. It, it, it's unique. And I've always valued Gary's perspective because it's different than what I've got. Um, I understand his comment earlier about the, the intellectual high flyers that were at Harvard. It's, it's oftentimes what happens when we have a guest on this show there's an intellectual high flyer. Well, there's two of them. They, and then there's me, uh, whoever our <laughs> guest is, and Danielle, and then myself. And uh, so I'm trying to live up to that standard of, of what that is. But I, I value the perspective that Gary has because it is seasoned with time, but it's also very, I, I think I think what I value about Gary's perspective is that he sees it with that mentality. I think of, when he talked about being the last guy on the bench, the value of the last person on the bench. And now he was honored to have that. A lot of people are insulted to have that, but Gary was honored to be in that spot. And I think that perspective um, just encapsulates his life. And that's the perspective that he has with life. And, and sometimes I need that reminder a lot. When I, maybe my head gets a little big, Gary's just like, hey, remember that last person on the bench and be honored to be that person. You know, I also think that uh, one of the things I've learned in, in Maine, what makes Maine a unique addition to it, you know, is weather and seasons and what have you is um, Mainers tend to be at times a little uh, insular. Uh, I have a number of colleagues that will, uh, you know, they're, they're focused on Maine athletics. Uh, and I always joke that if you look at Maine geographically, we have uh, a meridian of longitude that that it bought is our is our western border with New Hampshire, and the rest of the, the the state sort of juts out towards the Atlantic. And if you look at us, it looks like we're sort of facing away from the rest of the country. I, I always joke that you know we literally are facing Europe. If you look at sort of what our shape is, <laughs> shape of our state is, and 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 that sort of Mainers tend to be very insular and proud. And one of the things I and I again I I had the opportunity through my undergraduate education to be uh, exposed to the world. My my freshman year on my floor in my dorm, Thayer Hall, uh, my room, I had a roommate from Puerto Rico, uh, one from Moline, Illinois, across the hall. I had a, a gentleman from Cape Cod, Mass, and I had one, uh, and two guys from New York, one of Cuban origin, one of, of uh, Hispanic. I had a kid from Japan uh, who now is a big time filmmaker, Atsushi Ogata. He's all over the internet, but uh, he, 
he, he called himself Jack. And I asked him, why, if your name is not sushi, why do you call yourself Jack? And he said, why not? All right. Good answer, Jack. So <laughs> I, had I had different Japan, uh, kids from uh, Seattle. I mean, I had, I had like the world literally on my floor. Uh, and I, and I learned the idea of, you know, there's more to life than just, you know, where I grew up, uh, and let me learn from these people. And so I've always embraced sort of looking away from Europe and back at the rest of the country and see what's going on. And like in this profession has given me that opportunity to meet so many wonderful people. Um, uh, and even like Dustin, as you mentioned during this last two years, we, we got connected through Doug Kilgore on a Zoom. He invi Doug invites me to a Zoom to an Arkansas professional development. And we hit it off and have had chance to meet each other in person. But I, I think I've known you forever is how I feel. And, and that's the way it is with this. You know, our profession, our organization, it's just it's uh, the idea of there's always somebody out there who you can learn from. And that idea of, you know, be humble, uh, be willing to learn, uh, be open to new ideas um, and be thankful for what you have, too. Um, I feel very blessed uh, where I've I've been. So was Jack Sushi or whatever whatever you call him? Was he a psychology major? Jack was. Uh, I'm trying to think what he. I think he he was uh, in uh, visual arts, visual studies. He is now a filmmaker, and I've I'm, I'm friends on him with him on Facebook, and he's doing he's doing all sorts of films and they're premiering all over the world so as yeah, his name is Atsushi Ogata if you google it you probably see what he's all about he likes to wear like cowboy hats he's 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 60 years old but he he acts like he's probably 30 <laughs> and uh uh but uh just a great guy and and uh became a very good friend I, I I took a uh psychology class in college and the final we all prepare for and try to get ready and and the, the question was one word on the final. You walk in and the word why was the question. And so my response, similar to what Jack said to you, was why not? And I turned my paper in um, mm -hmm. because I thought that's what philosophy was. Or, yeah, not psychology, philosophy. Sure, um, sure. And so well, I think that's what philosophy is. You just question wait, the wait. why and you see the creative side of, of Jack in, wait, that, wait. in that endeavor. No, no. I need to know how you scored on that paper. I got an A. That was an A on the final. That was a, for philosophy. That's basically what you're questioning. Why not? Why can't something happen? Um, a lot of people will throw the word why out there. And so in my intellectual brilliance, I thought, why not give it a shot, turn it in. And then it ended up being okay for me. Worked out well, because I got an A on the final. So it really stunned people when they started, when I walked out after, you know, 10 seconds of just putting why not and turn my paper in, they're all writing this novel. And here I am with just two words and turn that back in. So um, it, it worked out well for me, but, and apparently for Jack, see, I relate to Jack. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't, I don't know if I, I could have gotten away with that. I, I, you know, you give me some flashbacks to exams. Um, I, and I'm actually, I'm an adjunct professor here, uh, at a small college in, in Maine. Uh, I teach one course in spring semester. And uh, in COVID, they got rid of all the blue books, which disappointed me because I was able to ex exact some revenge, I guess, on my students for all the things I had to do with blue books. <laughs> but our exams, uh, when I was an undergraduate, were usually three hours long. And you wrote for three hours. They were, they were you would, I mean, you look at the, the, the exam paper itself might be one page or three quarters of a page. But you wrote for three hours. They were exhausting 
experiences, just writing and writing and writing. And uh, I was doing an exam one year and I'd finished my, my exam right at the gun. And uh, we had this guy, his first name was Bill. I'm trying to remember his last name, but he was the proctor for all the exams in Memorial Hall in Cambridge. And Memorial Hall is this big Gothic looking, looks like a big church, but it was built as a structure to honor World War I vets. But there's this big giant hall where people took their finals and you're, it's so intimidating because they're really high ceilings. You feel like you're in a cathedral and all these intense people all writing at once. It is like the, it is like the most intimidating environment. And you've got this guy, Bill, who we used to call Mr. Test or Doc Proc. He'd be up there every 30 minutes. You got two hours and 30 minutes to go in the exam. Down to two hours. And then you only have 10 minutes. 10 minutes. And you're trying to finish. Shut up, Bill. 10 minutes. No, it's enough. So I remember finishing my exam, putting the pen down. And there's a guy next to me finishing his blue book. And he's going beyond the time. I literally watched exam proctors wrestle the pen out of his hand. They, it, I thought they were going to arrest him for taking a test. Uh, it was so, so uh, I've seen people that uh, the why not, um, I don't think they would already would subscribe to that, that philosophy of exam taking, but I'm happy it worked for you. Yeah. What, I, what I'm yeah. hearing is Dustin should not apply to Harvard. That is what I'm getting out of that. <laughs> I think Harvard would have benefited from Dustin because I think Harvard, Harvard uh, at times, uh, can have a little higher opinion of itself. And my roommates and I used to joke about this all the time. We need some levity. We need some sense of humor, you know? Uh, and, and sometimes it can be a little haughty. Uh, so, yeah, I think we could have used that. But what you find out and what Gary found out is if you sit by me at an awards banquet, um, there's liable to be some humor being shared. Um, and so my, my uh, I don't want to say hypocrisy because that's, but my tombstone quote would be my hypocrisy knows no bounds. Well, my humor knows no bounds. Um, I, I spent a lot of time talking with Gary at, at an awards banquet this past year uh, in Denver when we were honoring uh, Doug Kilgore, who we mentioned right. earlier. We spent some time at a table, and um, Gary and his wife may not want to sit with me ever again uh, just because <laughs> of the amount of humor that was shared. Well, at least I think Annette Scoggin and maybe somebody else was between us, so that helped. But you were facing me. So, uh... <laughs> uh, this is true. I mean, uh, perspective. I was just honored to be the last guy on the bench, Gary. That's what I was honored to be. You're a Cubs fan, right? I am. And uh, you can you understand perspective this season especially right. yeah okay. I, I tell people all the time my favorite phrase is next year is our year and it's yeah. usually in spring training when i use that phrase and it hasn't <laughs> happened i mean we got a little later start in spring training this year but it still was applicable in april yeah so i i've heard the people at wrigley are struggling to find the w flag it's folded up somewhere they right. haven't they're having a hard time finding it yeah they, they think it's one of the m m labels <laughs> now <laughs> they turned it upside down. But, yeah, Gary is. A, I'm a. Are you a Red Sox or a Yankees fan? Oh gosh, that is like that. That they ask that question on this show. Red Sox. <laughs> yeah. Red Sox. Oh, I am an avid Red Sox fan. I. Uh, uh, the the Yankees aren't my least favorite team. My least favorite team is Tampa Bay. So apologies to my Florida Florida viewers. <laughs> uh, but the, whenever the wrestlers play Tampa Bay, it's like they, they seem to be brawls that break out. So I, I just tired of that. But uh, well, I'm a I'm I'm definitely a Red Sox fan. Have been 
Uh, in fact, my first game I went to at Fenway was in 1971. They played the Detroit Tigers. Joe Coleman over Ray Culp, 2-0 on a home run by Norm Cash in the eighth. I remember it like it was yesterday. That was 51 years ago. And so uh, I, I go to Boston as many times as I can to watch my the, whole, the old town team play. And being, being a – hockey is not big in Arkansas, but hockey is big in your part of the country. Right. Um, do you appreciate the movie Miracle? Oh yes, without question. And I, there are a lot of people. In fact, one of my uh, one of our teams in their little psych tape that before you know the, the, their music pregame music, they have the clip from uh, that pregame speech. The Herb Brooks, Kurt Russell character, obviously doing the pregame speech about uh, this is our time, this is our you know. So that without question, I I actually uh, I remember uh, watching that game. And uh, what was interesting, again, it shows you how time time is flying. I was actually a freshman in college during that time. And those games, those Olympic hockey games were not shown live at all. ABC did tape delays for everything. And, and it's funny because Lake Placid's in our time zone, but they did tape delays. So uh, I remember uh, in our freshman union, there was a, had a TV set. We didn't have a TV in our room or even our dorm. So we went to the freshman union to watch games or what have you. And a bunch of us gathered and we knew the game had already taken place. Um, and we just, just decided we were not going to, going to listen to the radio. We're not going to get the score. There was no internet then. So it was the radio was where you're going to find it. So we're watching this unfold. And it's just amazing that, you know, that, that game against Russia. And uh, it was two, two. And uh, there are probably 40 of us sitting in, around this TV and this random guy comes in and says, hey, did you hear? We won. We won. We won. So he spoiled the ending for us. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I can certainly uh, identify with that moment. I watched it, uh, at least in tape delay from Blake Placid. So he, just, was like, he was like the bill of your testing proctoring. He come in and you just like, shut oh, up, yeah. shut up, shut up. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I've actually, we, we, I've been to Lake Placid several times. That 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 rink is uh, a special place. It's there's something about being in that facility uh, and looking at that that sheet of ice and think of what happened there uh, all the those many years ago. And it, what was interesting that wasn't even the gold medal game. A lot of people think mm -hmm. they, that was the that was the, the semifinals. They had to beat Finland, I believe it was, and they beat Finland. They, they actually fell behind, I think two to one, and then came back and and rolled, rolled uh, in that game. But uh, that was absolutely amazing. And I actually had a chance that, that earlier that, that winter um, to watch that team play at Bright Center at Harvard. They played the Harvard varsity team in an exhibition, um, beat them 5-0. In fact, one of our Harvard's four players, uh, uh, and I'm trying to think his name, Jack Hughes, he was a defenseman. He was the last person cut uh, before they took their, their final group to Lake Placid. But he was playing against his former teammates. So I saw Jim Craig play. I saw Michael Ruzioni play. I saw the Christians, um, all those people. I, I had a chance to watch them play just probably two months before they won that gold medal. So I just recently found out um, a cool factoid, but my parents were actually at that Olympics in Lake Placid. Now, they didn't go to that game. Um, they went to some other events. But they said, like, afterwards at the bar, everything, it was like, they have the coolest stories um, from that, that they were, they were actually at that Olympic game. Yeah. They played, they played the, um, 
they they did the, the speed skating was literally in front of the high school. The the high the Lake Placid High School is right next to the Olympic Center, and the Olympic Center has two rinks: the 1980 rink, the Miracle and Ice Rink, and the one from the previous Lake Placid Olympics. And and Lake Placid High School actually plays its high school games in the older rink. And a friend of mine from uh, who's now in Plattsburgh, New York, uh, Matt Wallentuck, was the AD at Lake Placid for many years, and. Um, and I, he, he, you know, he and I were talking about the, the videos of watching Eric Hyden win his four gold medals in front of the high school. They just they basically flooded it, froze it over. They put bleachers in the streets, uh, and that's where people watched it. I mean, Lake Placid looks like, you know, it just it looks like a tourist town. And you're like, how in the world do they have Olympic games here? And they were bringing people in from hotels from all over the the region to. Mm-hmm. To get up there, and I know you being from New York, and you have a sense, uh, Danielle. It's like it's in the middle of the Adirondacks, and, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it, it, it's there's some travel that's involved getting people from places they they can stay to to that rink. Now, you we talked about Miracle, and you 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 got to watch that game or the semifinal game anyway. <clears throat> you got to watch it not live, but tape delayed. I just finished a book about the 1936 Olympics. Were you present for that? I was not. I couldn't get tickets. Um, you know, and uh, so no, I, I wasn't quite there. But my you don't father, have to. my father was born in 1936. So there's my. You don't I, have to be nice to him. Yeah. You don't. I, I, I take I take it because I can dish it back if I have to. Yeah, but, David, but the book was Boys in the Boat, and I don't know if you've read The Boys in the Boat, but it's a phenomenal book. Great book, and it's a very lengthy book, but it's a great book about the 1936 rowing team that actually were really prominent in Washington, um, and they're they're from Washington, obviously, but um, how they represented us in, the, in a, I guess, a political climate that was really tough at that time, and they were kind of oblivious to it, but a great book, and it's about yeah. an Olympic team as well. Yeah, no, and I, I'm a big fan of that book. Uh, number one, what's interesting is that the Olympics in those days, they didn't form a, an all-star team. It was literally a, a college crew that had, had rowed together, uh, and they actually had to compete against other college crews to get that spot in the Olympics. And my, I had three college roommates that were rowers. One was actually an All-American. I was invited to try out for the 84 games in Los Angeles. Uh, he was a lightweight rower, so he, he had, to, had to have beefed up to make that team. He, he didn't make the team, but got invited. Uh, but what my favorite chapter in that book, Dustin, is the chapter about the craftsmanship in making the boat. Mm-hmm. And you may recall they had a, an English, um, and he was almost like their assistant coach, but he was their, their boat builder, basically. And he worked for the uh, University of Washington. He built those shells. And, he, and, you know, the book, the chapter talked about the precision with which he made sure that the curvature of every part of the the, the the, the, the shell was in line and uh and, and again for the speed of the boat it had to be perfect but also be able to to, to carry the weight of the people in it so it, it was just amazing technical knowledge you had to employ but what i loved especially about the chapter was that like their rival crew uh another crew from another t- college employed him to build their boat right and he could have played the hometown advantage uh, angle and made their boat less than quality to give his, his school a chance. But he had such uh, integrity and believed in the importance of the craft and believed in the importance of sportsmanship and fair play that he worked as hard on the opposing school's boats as he did his own. 
And I think that's one of those great lessons out of that chapter I, I gleaned. Well, <clears throat> you think about, I think there was one time where he said 15 out of the 16 boats that were there in the competition were all his boats. Yes. Um, and or his shells uh, that he had made. And um, talk about, I mean, just an impressive, uh, <clears throat> a, a pr impressive display of character um, on display of the integrity, doing the right thing. Um, and he was worried about trying to make sure. And in that time when money was really tight, he was trying to make sure that he put the best product out there for everyone, not just for the Washington boys, which would have been easy for him to do, right. <clears throat> but for everybody. And so incredible book, Boys in the Boat. If you haven't read it, um, it's a, it's a very good book. Um, and it, it's an, it's a true story. So you get to look at it from the eyes of a, it's not fictional. It's not made up. It is something that is actually, that actually occurred. Um, and we can't verify that. And none of us can verify that because we weren't present during that. That was a joke towards Gary earlier, but <laughs> it is a, it is a factual historically based story that, um, there's, there's a ton of lessons out of, and I, I appreciate I, I figured Gary probably, probably had read that book. Yeah. But man, Gary, this, this time has flown by. I've enjoyed just kind of picking your brain, kind of laughing at your expense sometimes. Uh, but I think this is great for our ADs that are listening to understand perspective. Uh, yeah. And perspective was on display in a lot of a lot of ways and stories that you shared with us, um, from the runner to um, you as a with with your now wife. The perspective of hey, this is a bigger picture than just this episode um, and this this game. But then talking about Olympics, talking about your education background, I mean, such a such a wealth of knowledge that people could could glean from this episode. And I appreciate you jumping on board with us and spending some time with us. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And uh, one of the things, just uh, uh, if I could put in a cheap plug of my own as well, because I, uh, again, I mentioned, but I think it's important when you you learn and you uh gather information, be able to share it with others. Uh, project working on right now that very excited about. Um, uh, there's a local sportscaster here in the Portland, Maine area, Dave Ead, uh, who I've known for about 18 years. We've become friends. And uh, we were talking um, about, uh, oh gosh, it was probably September 2020 when the pandemic was about five, six months old. And my, my area of the state of Maine was shut down, which is a story in itself. Um, and trying to find a way to get our kids out in the fields. And uh, we we're just talking about the, the sadness of waiting to play. And, and Dave goes, you know, we should write a book about this. And we, he said it to me for the last couple of years, he kept saying, but we, we've actually started writing it. We are writing a book. Uh, it's called Stolen Seasons, How COVID Crippled Maine Sports. And it's about high school sports, college sports, our professional teams, our minor league teams, the officiating crisis in Maine, which is experienced in the country as well. Um, uh, sports medicine, all those things. And we're putting it together in a book we hope to have out uh, late fall or early winter of this year. And, uh, and again, it's, it's, it's sharing stories. And the book has, does have a villain. The villain is COVID. Okay. There, that's the thief. If, if you want to know who, who stole the seasons, it's, it's, it's the virus. But just talks about how people of varying viewpoints have all tried to tackle this and um, and, and, and get us through this in our state. But, you know, the lessons that we have learned in trying to get ourselves back on the fields and 
resorming, you know, trying to get back to some degree of, of normalcy, which I don't know if we ever will, frankly. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to meet people like you both and all the folks that we've encountered during the last two years because your experiences have informed our experiences and have given us hope. Uh, you know, I was envious watching you play in Arkansas, Dustin, but also learning from you tell me the stories of spacing kids out on the hash marks of the football field to create social distancing. I'm like, clever idea, nice, nice ploy. We could do that, you know, and, and learning from what you did. So we got back, we had tools in our toolkit to have success. So I thank you for the opportunity to be here and, and for the opportunity to, to, to share and, and to um, and hear your stories as well. Yes, thank you. Um, I'm very appreciative. I love hearing, uh, you know, everyone's different stories and perspectives from all over our country. Um, so thank you very much for being here. And also thank you to Ticket Spicket, who is um, our sponsor and the official ticketing partner of the NIAAA. So thank you to them for making this episode in every episode possible. So thank you, Gary. And we will be back next week with another episode.